Chasing Lights Chapter 5 When does the light come back? When can I trust the warmth to stay? Every day after school, there was an Alaskan TV show just for kids called Mother Moose. A guy named Larry Beck with a dark beard and an old time gold miner outfit would appear on a set that looked like an old log cabin with his wife, Carol Edgar. She was a former Miss Montana beauty pageant winner, and she would wear a tremendous moose head and an old-fashioned pioneer dress of some kind. I seem to remember that Mr. Beck called her Miss Northern Lights whenever she was out of costume. I have to admit, the appeal of the show was less the improvised patter between the two and, and more the cartoons of Rocky and Bullwinkle and Underdog that they introduced, both of which were funnier and more sophisticated than I realized at the time. Larry Beck was, was much more ubiquitous than a television show. He was described as the Bard of Alaska. He traveled all over the state performing readings of Robert Service poems or telling stories about Alaska, and he was the voice of Alaska Airlines. It was kind of neat to be told to fasten our seatbelts by the Bard. Uh, the Bureau of Tourism loved him. And I suspect he did a lot of shows for tour boats and conventions and such. He also visited schools. And even though his act was kind of corny, he was a good teacher. And when I memorized and performed The Cremation of Sam McGee many years later, his voice was constantly in my head. His patter about the statistics of Alaska, well, I used it repeatedly to impress people outside, such as Minnesota is the land of 10,000 lakes. Well, Alaska has three million of them, or Alaska is the farthest north, the farthest west, and the farthest eastern state in the Union. It, it might have impressed some people about my home, but I doubt it did very much for me. He, he probably didn't get paid very much for his work over the years. He just loved doing it. And even if the pay was low, who wouldn't like getting paid something anyway to recite poetry? His family and friends described him as the most positive, most friendly, and most happy person around. And years later, I realized just how impossible it was for a performer to make a career in such a sparsely populated place. It's hard enough to get work somewhere like New York City, but filled with audiences that are willing to pay. But Alaska? That is impressive. But it wasn't enough. Sometimes... Darkness wins, even with people who do what they love. In 1990, at the age of 55, Mr. Beck threw himself out of a second-story window. Hidden darkness is dangerous. And no matter how awful darkness is, it is difficult to let go of it. It's deep. It's too deep to hold on to, to master, or to understand. This is bigger than we are. A deep pool is easy to slip into and difficult to exit. 
It's possible to avoid falling in, I suppose. Many people live near the tropics while others stay focused and happy no matter how dark it is outside. But step into that pool and its currents will inexorably draw down to the bottom. Many try to get out of the pool through frenetic action. Keep busy, go faster, thrash about, get out, whatever it takes. Other people cloak and deny where they are with perhaps the help of drugs and alcohol, and neither strategy works. Perhaps for a moment there's an escape, but the, the current itself never flags. It never leaves. When someone finally tires of thrashing around or getting high, the pool stands ready to pull them down. I've learned that there is a counterintuitive way out. Go through it. Accept the darkness and then let go of it. Now that's difficult as most people hold the darkness long after light has returned. Light doesn't seem credible after all that. But the moment one lets go, the dark pool disappears. Now that moment leaves me a little disoriented and uncertain. But I'm out. Now this is not easy to do. I've spent most of my life trying to learn how, and I'm still an amateur. Stories sometimes help make the unknowable a little less intimidating. Here's one that has been told in Alaska for thousands of years. In the beginning, the world was dark, dark everywhere, whether it was day or night. The light was kept in a box by a powerful man, and the box was never opened. No one was allowed to see the light. And the raven knew that the world was suffering, that the light must be set free. Everyone else who had tried failed because the man was too powerful and the box too well secured. The raven is a powerful trickster and he rarely gives up when he sets his mind to a shiny prize. He waited in a tree over a well until the man's daughter came to get a drink of water. The raven then magically transformed himself into a single pine needle and fell unseen into the daughter's cup of water. Thirsty, she drank it to the bottom and without knowing it, drank the raven as well. The daughter then became pregnant and nine months of darkness later gave birth to a beautiful baby boy. The boy was incredibly smart, just like the raven and immensely charming. The daughter's father was thrilled to become a grandfather. He would do anything just to hear the baby boy laugh one more time. He held and rocked and played with the baby for hours every day. The baby's voice filled the house with joy. The baby, though, was obsessed with the box. Nothing would satisfy him until the box was opened. Loving the baby so much, the grandfather agreed to open it, but just for a moment. He opened the box to the light that lay within, and that moment, was all that the raven needed. In a flash, the baby became a bird once again, snatched the light in his beak, and flew out the front door before anyone knew what had happened. He flew up to the top of the sky, the world now filling with light. On the way to the top, an eagle tried to grab the light from him, 
but only managed to chip away two pieces of light before the raven then placed his prize at the top of the sky. The pieces also stayed in the sky. One became the moon, and the other became stars. You see, the blackbird tricked us out of the dark and into the light. Thanks to the raven's long con, we got out of winter. When I was a kid, I would forget that light and warmth were even possible. When I wasn't looking, though, the snow would diminish and then disappear at the end of May. The streets seemed to suddenly enlarge once the snowbanks diminished. Still, even on a warm day, we would all walk to school with our winter gear on, just in case we would tie our coats over shoulders or around our waists and shuffle our snow boots over the exposed gravel. Now, most kids don't raise their feet very much when they walk, but northern kids excel at that. On ice, shuffling helps to avoid falls. But in May, most of the ice is gone. At some point in June, instead of putting on a coat, almost recklessly, I put on a windbreaker. It felt like I really wasn't dressed. But like someone falling back into a friend's arms, I let go. There might still be a few remains of black snowbanks in certain gutters or parking lots, but now it was time to trust the light. 10 or 11 at night, and it was still bright outside. The time of the midnight sun. Now, when talked about in poetry or stories, the midnight sun, it, you know, it just sounds so dramatic. Some sort of cinematic sting of bass drums should accompany it along with an eerie violin solo or something like that. But that's, that's not what it was like. In June and July, you have really nice days. Then the sun doesn't go down until very late. In the morning, the bright sunshine wakes you up. That's it. The only truly exceptional thing was that most people slept half as much as they did in January and did not feel tired. There was a saying that the best part of living in Anchorage was the proximity to Alaska. Now, Anchorage was the big city, even though there were only 136,000 people living there at the time. Many of them were eager to explore the real Alaska that was only a few miles away. With school out for the summer, we now had time to go and see it. Now, there were only two roads out of town. One went north to the Matanuska Valley, where one could either go east through the Chugach Mountain Pass to Valdez or north to Denali and Fairbanks. The second road went south through the Kenai Peninsula. That was our main road over the next few years. And just like in Whittier, outside of Anchorage, the mountains went straight down to the water. There was barely room for a two-lane highway cut into the side of a cliff. Small streams of water would flow down the rocks, creating magnificent ice sculptures in the winter and mossy rock faces in the summer. The ocean was right next to us, 10 to 20 feet below. The ocean near Anchorage always looked gray and angry, no matter how nice the day was. There were miles of mudflats and an aggressive bore tide that got as high as 6 to 10 feet and rushed in at 15 miles an hour. At high tide, the water was filled with silty mud. At low tide, all we could see were miles of clay. And the first time I saw a sandy beach in a warm place, I was shocked. Part of me believed that beaches like that only existed in Hollywood movies. And the first time I saw a blue-colored ocean, I thought I was dreaming. The boar tide was precarious, partially because it seemed to happen without warning. 
Now, tides everywhere else are a gradual sort of thing where you look up from your book and realize the ocean is a little higher. Now, once we walked out into the tidal flats to hunt for clams or to gather clay for a ceramic project, my brother and I followed a rivulet in the clay closer and closer to the water's edge. It was strange and beautiful out there, despite the grayness. And distracted by little crabs on the clay, I wasn't paying any attention to the water. My brother looked up at one point and said, let's get out of here. Oh, don't worry about it, I said. There's plenty of time. It's just a wave. But he insisted. And he was right. The water kept coming faster and faster. We ended up running as hard as we could to stay ahead of it. And, and thank goodness it, it wasn't a full tide. But if we had stayed behind, that was enough to swamp us in water that's barely above freezing. The road was equally frightening with the tight hairpin curves back and forth and the roiling ocean below. But a few miles beyond the mudflats in the summer, there would often be a dozen cars pulled half over on the shoulder. All the drivers and passengers would press against the guardrail and point down into the water. We learned quickly that we should pull over too because in the water below the road, there was usually a pod of beluga whales. Closer than I've ever been to the whales, the viewing of belugas along the side of the road was both ordinary and extraordinary at the same time. Two, three, five, or six white shapes quietly slithering up and down in the water like dragons. Then they slipped away without ceremony. Then everyone got back into their cars, made their way back and forth on the winding road until we got beyond the most difficult parts of Turnigan Arm. Turnigan is an interesting name for a geographic feature. It was first called Turn Again, because when looking for the Northwest Passage in 1778, Captain Cook sent a search party up two areas that looked like they could be passages. The first one, Kinnick Arm, led to a river. The other one was also a river and definitely not a passage. And frustrated, the expedition called it Turn Again. Reality trumped the magical thinking of the 18th century that there might be a northern pass between the Pacific and the Atlantic. Alaska rarely bows to the will of humans, no matter how inconvenient that might be. Near a small village of Cooper Landing, we camped out on a wild pebble beach, Kenai Lake. We pitched our tents between some protective driftwood and the hillside that, that rose from the beach. A windy spot, even though it was a warm and sunny day, we kept our sweaters and our windbreakers on. Small waves around a foot high were rolling in after being pushed by the wind down the 22 miles of lake. And late in that day, it became warm enough that we wanted to dip our toes into the water. We, we didn't have bathing suits with us, but mom, ever practical, told us just to go in our underwear since we had extra and there was no one around for miles. My brother, sister, and I, without pants, but sweaters still on, held hands as we stepped into the surf. The water was cold, cold enough that we didn't stay in for long. Instead, we ran back to the tent, dried off our feet, and put on our pants. We didn't know that my father had taken a quick photo of us as we stepped into the water. And he somehow he captured the wild beauty that three small children were now a part of. Snow-topped mountains descending straight into the water, the sparkling reflection of sunlight, the scrub pines, and the driftwood everywhere all came together in a single photo. As a kid, I never really liked looking at the photo or 
that anyone else was looking at it either. It was embarrassing for me to be seen in my white briefs and to make matters worse, my father then reproduced the image in a painting. But how perfect to see three small children step into a world so big and wild. And with time, I got over my embarrassment. It's an amazing image. Our camping continued to evolve and became more sophisticated. Every family member except for our youngest sister got their own backpacks. My father, brother, and I each got our own frame packs. Below, a rolled up sleeping bag was attached and on top, pieces of the tents and fishing poles were tied on. Inside were our clothes and food. My sister had a knapsack and my mother had a framed baby carrier with room below for a sleeping bag. All of us had cowbells attached to help chase away bears. We also carried lightweight supplies like aluminum bowls, plates, cups, a pot, and a kettle. Food was distributed between all of us. We had some freeze-dried food at first where a bit of hot water could magically turn it into something kind of like stew. The heady days of the space program were still in everyone's memory, so eating space food seemed like a good idea, uh, but unfortunately the food was terrible. So we started to carry food from the grocery store instead. One time early in our camping days, my father decided to make spaghetti on the campfire. As difficult as that might sound, it turned out well, even if it wasn't as planned. The ends of the dried pasta dropped into the boiling water were ignited by the campfire, but it tasted pretty good once we had the sauce. Now today, a stylish restaurant might do the same thing to add a smoky char to the dish. It tasted good. My father always took care of the cooking when we camped. The lighting of the gas camp stove could be challenging enough. It involved attaching it to a small fuel tank attached to the burners and pumping it up to build up enough pressure, then turning the valves on as he lit the burner. It, it usually took him a while. And, and sometimes he'd get angry and eloquent about the motivations of the manufacturer. But then the flames were underway and the pot or pan was uh, ready to cook. Once he set up the camp stove near the back of the camper, it, it must have been for breakfast because I seem to remember eating cold cereal out of a bowl while sitting at the campground picnic table. There was the usual muttered cursing, but just as the flame started, the entire stove fell over and somehow lit the camper itself. As flames leapt up the back of the camper, I was amazed to see a car burn so easily. My father quickly grabbed the fire extinguisher and put it out, but for some time after that, the camper had pink-colored blisters on the back and a strangely shaped taillight. Everything still worked, but now it was easier to find. There were other off-white VW campers in town, and now there was no problem picking hours out in the grocery store parking lot. The first solstice I can remember was at Lower Russian Lake, near Cooper's Landing. Russian River and the lakes were well known for their two salmon runs every summer. Salmon somehow would climb up the white water and falls to the lakes where they would lay their eggs and then die. And when they climbed over the falls, they took flight in the air as they jumped over the top. Now, the only way to get to the lakes was on foot. It was an easy, mostly flat hike of a few miles on a groomed path. But as a kid with a pack on his back, it felt like an epic march. It couldn't have been that heavy, but in my memory, the pack was filled with lead weights. I will never forget what it felt like to get it off the lightness I felt and the relief of cool air 
drying out the back of my shirt. The hike also made us unreasonably thirsty. Now, the first part of the walk was through a verdant pine forest, but then the second section went through an area that experienced a forest fire a few years before. The sun seemed to burn down on our heads as we walked through blackened trunks of dead trees and the dust at our feet kicked up dry clouds. My brother, sister, and I suffered loudly as we trudged through this hellish half mile. The air and the sun seemed to be extracting all moisture out of us. When, when would it end? Could we make it? At some point, as the trees started to look green and healthy again, we would start to hear water flowing. Oh, wow, were we imagining that? Could that, could that be a stream? Our steps quickened. Our packs seemed just a little lighter. The sound of a stream became louder and louder until we turned a bend in the path to view a bridge over a rushing stream. We ran to the stream bank, took off our backpacks, and threw ourselves down on our stomachs to stick our faces into the cold water, and we drank. No water before or since tasted as good as that rushing water. I'm pretty sure I sucked up at least a quart of it every time we hiked that trail. I later found out that drinking water in a stream that's often frequented by bears is an excellent way to catch a parasite. There were a lot of bears in that area, but I'm grateful that we never got sick and that we didn't know any better because otherwise I never would have experienced that amazing drink of water fresh from a stream after an epic hike. Not far from that stream was the lake. We got to a good area for a campground near the beach of the lake with a view of the hills and mountains all around us. We were there on the lake alone except for a warden from the fishing game department. His job was to count the spawning salmon as they entered the lake from the river. My brother and I were once again beach fishing with the accustomed frustration and resentment. It was a peaceful night and the water was glass. And then a single long boat with a small outboard motor came towards us and beached right next to us. Slim, long-limbed, and calm, the warden jumped out and pulled the boat higher up on the beach. He quietly refolded his hip waders down to his calves, somehow looking now like the leather boots worn by musketeers in an Alexander Dumas story. He didn't wear a uniform, just blue jeans and a flannel shirt along with a baseball cap. He said hello nicely to us. We answered him a little shyly because, after all, he looked like a hero from an adventure story. My father then appeared on the beach to see what was going on, and he said, Hello. The warden was just being neighborly. Alone as he was, he probably just wanted to talk with someone. He was a graduate student with a summer job assessing the health of the salmon population. It didn't matter what he did summer or winter, though. My brother and I immediately thought he was the coolest guy on earth. Fifty years later, I still think that. Soft-spoken and economical with his words, he lived in a cabin at the base of the lake. He had a boat. He wore his hip waders every day. He was Alaska cool. My parents also liked him. You know, he, we visited him all the time when we camped at Lower Russian, and for years after, we'd even see him in Anchorage when he visited. Now, Lower Russian became a summer cottage for us. 
Of course, we had to carry our cottage on our backs, but it was so nice there, we never minded. We would get to see our friend, the warden, and spend summer days relaxing near the water, picking berries, or just reading a book as the day went lazily by. And I remember once lying on my stomach inside a tent reading a book when I heard a rumble in the mountains. And almost immediately after, the ground underneath me felt like it was liquefied, as if I was just lying on a waterbed and waves were passing underneath me. I jumped out of the tent, not quite able to figure out what had just happened. Perhaps I had fallen asleep or something, I, but, but the rest of the family, they were all looking a bit shaken up as well. It was an earthquake. Instead of feeling the house shake, I felt the shock waves move through the ground underneath. But everything was fine. It passed right through us, and the tent was still standing. That night, the warden took us onto the lake. From the center, we could clearly see a glacier on the horizon that looked to me like a bowl of frozen cream tipped towards us to pour into the valley. On the night of solstice, the bowl of cream lit up with all the colors of an epic sunset. The sky above was even brighter with the pink, orange, and purple of a solstice night. The air all around us looked dusty blue or violet like sunsets in many places, but in Alaska, the color lasted all night. The sun continuously set, just skimming across the horizon and never dropping. On another night, as the air became dusty blue again, the warden took us into his boat to go fishing. We waited for him eagerly on the beach, and when he came, we quickly got on board with all our tackle. He had promised to take us to the special part of the lake where the trout go to feed at night. It wasn't far, and after a few minutes speeding along the glassy surface of the lake, he cut the engine and dropped a small anchor. My brother and I started to get ready, unhooking lures and getting ready to cast. The warden then looked at us intensely when he said in a quiet voice, Don't fish hungry. That seemed strange to my brother and I, and, and so we asked, Why? And the warden answered, Because the fish god will know, and he will tell the fish not to bite. All night, my brother and I tried to look as full as we could manage. I don't know how convincing we were, but we did catch a basket full of the most beautiful trout. His advice lingers. It's not easy advice to follow, especially since everyone in the world advises us to feel hungry, whether it's for an education, a job, money, status, or even meaning. The hungrier one is, however, the more likely the goal will slip from your grasp. For too much of my life, I have fished hungry. Good things have happened, but not because of my hunger, despite it. The older I get, the more I appreciate his advice. Don't fish hungry. Well, that night we wouldn't be hungry at all. We must have caught a dozen fish or more. And back at the beach, we unloaded and my father offered to take a picture of us with the trophies. 
my brother, sister, and I all lined up, my brother with one fish, me with the rest, and my sister just happy to stand there with us. I tried to lift the fish over my head, which were all attached to a single line of rope, but they were incredibly heavy. Somehow I got them up to the height of my shoulder. My father seemed to take forever to snap a picture. My sister looked off camera somewhere, and it, it, it looked like her long hair was blowing in the breeze. There was no breeze that night, so the photograph must have caught her in mid-motion somehow. She seemed to have all of summer inside her at that moment, just bubbling out of her. My brother, with his usual unself-conscious grace, held his one fish in his fist high above his head. The fish looked down on him as my brother looked up, victorious. His back arched and his arm behind his waist. He looked like a conquering hero in that moment, as he often does, with all the excitement and joy of someone who is truly alive. My father loved that photo so much that he ended up commissioning a local painter to turn it into a family portrait. Two other photos taken that night of my youngest sister holding her own fishing pole and of our dog Ralph were given to the painter to combine somehow with the main photo. The finished large painting was proudly put up on the living room wall where it seemed to illuminate the room. More than any photo taken of us, it captures the spirit of who we were as children in Alaska, when we were full of summer light and summer trout. Let there be light. <laughs>